0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and Coverage Match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit hyundaiusa.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronya podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome, everybody, a little midweek edition of Rico Bronia. A lot going on. And by a lot going on, I mean nothing's going on other than rumors and anxiety about when this MLB offseason will really, truly begin. When will we get that big free agent signing that will cause a lot of us to say, How come we didn't sign that guy? What are we doing? And then when are we, as Met fans, going to celebrate our first signing. Now, before we get to any of that, understand that Friday is a very pivotal day in Major League Baseball because that's the day we're going to find out for us if Daniel Vogelbach is coming back and then B, other guys that are going to join free agency. The non-tender deadline is on Friday, and there's going to be a handful of guys, maybe not stars obviously, but guys that become available that we will look at and say, "Hey, that guy fits the Mets." In fact, Something happened over the last 48 hours that sort of goes that route. The Cleveland Guardians decided to DFA Cal Quantrill. And Cal Quantrill is certainly a guy who you would look at and say, I don't mind him as rotation depth. He's still relatively young. He's only 28 years old. He's coming off a terrible year last year, but the year before that was a reliable innings eater. And since the New York Mets love Jeremy Hefner, and he's Teflon, no matter who the manager is, Maybe Jeremy Hefner could take out his magic wand and fix Cal Quantrill. So he's certainly one of the guys that recently became available, and more guys will become available on Friday during the non-tender deadline. All right, a couple of thoughts on Mendoza and his staff. We'll get to a lot of emails today, and we'll talk through some of the rumors that have come out about some of the premier free agents in Major League Baseball. Number one, I just made that kind of snide remark about Jeremy Hefner, and I'm very mixed about the Hefner thing because – Everything I hear about him is that he's a brilliant guy and that he is the kind of pitching coach that if he was made available to other teams, teams would be climbing all over each other to hire him. So obviously, Jeremy Hefner is a respected guy. David Stearns took over this organization, certainly didn't owe anything to Jeremy Hefner and decided to retain him. And they decided to retain him before Carlos Mendoza ever met him. I mean, think about that. The the Mets hire a manager. They're going to trust Mendy to be a big part of building this staff. And one thing he never got to make a decision on is the pitching coach. So Jeremy Hefner is obviously very well respected in the Met organization. What is challenging sometimes with coaches and for us to determine, hey, should that guy still be here? What do we think of this guy is we go on results and because the Met pitching has been so mediocre over the last year. And it's not just high-priced guys not pitching well. You've had other guys go backwards. You know, Drew Smith certainly jumps out at you as a reliever who's gone backwards over the last few years. You look at those results, and you say, is Jeremy Heffner really that good at his job? I mean, it's a fair question to ask. So I'm not pissed that he's back. I'm just more impressed that he's back. I'm impressed that... Whether it's Luis Rojas or it's Buck Showalter, and now it's Carlos Mendoza, the Mets are committed to being in the Jeremy Hefner business. With that said, he is going to have a lot of work to do in 2024, because as much as the Mets may add a veteran starting pitcher or two, or a potential ace or two, a big part of what is going to need to happen in 2024 for the Mets to be successful and surprise some maybe is you're going to need guys to come out of nowhere you're going to need pitchers to develop whether it's some of the younger guys like mike vassal and blade tidwell and christian scott who may come up at some point whether it's some of the relievers who could turn out to be key relievers in this bullpen not necessarily the guys they signed during the offseason we're going to, need to see jeremy hefner work that magic but right now he's worked some kind of magic pete and you know what that magic is he continues to have a job as the pitching coach of the New York Mets.
1: Well, I want to say this because it's, it's funny. Like the one thing that Mendoza made a point of when pitching, the, when picking the staff, he goes, we're going to have people that are very energetic and we're going to have this, whatever his explanation was. I don't remember exactly, but I remember hearing the word energy. Jeremy Hefter doesn't have, that. he's very dry. He's very plain. And like you said, really, I haven't seen the effectiveness at all over the past couple of years. If anything, they've relied upon you know star stud veterans to be the the, the you know the the lock for the for the for the pitching staff, and I, I just don't under, I I don't get the Jeremy Heffner thing, and I don't understand I, think- why, I don't understand why Mendoza has to be thrown Hefner to start it off.
0: So so what's interesting about it though is that this Hefner obsession that the Mets have stems different general managers and different managers. So it's not as if there's one general manager that just loves Jimmy Hefner and he's basically telling every manager you have to have him. I mean, David Stearns clearly runs this organization and he's made a lot of changes in the front office in a short period of time. And obviously he made a change at manager and he did that immediately. And David Stearns walks in here and obviously, thinks Jeremy Hefner is legit. What I have heard is that with his pitching data, with his communication, with the way he's viewed around the game, Jeremy Hefner is respected around baseball. And if the Mets decided to move on from him, teams would be lining up to try to hire him. That's what I have heard about him. Like I said before, I, I think a lot of us just go based on results. And if the Mets had a lot of overachieving pitchers, kind of like what the Braves used to do in the late 90s where Leo Mazzoni would bring in you know, Jared Wright and all of a sudden he'd be great, I think those are the kinds of things we're looking for and we haven't seen that yet. So that, that's, that's the weird thing about it. I think that's the thing we're waiting on. I'm really intrigued to see what he does at bench coach because one of the, the rumors that have come out since Mendoza had his press conference is his love affair for Willie Randolph. And I'll tell you why I'm very intrigued by Willie Randolph. And it's not just the connection to 06, 07, which is not even this great time in Met history. Let's think about it. You know, 2006, they had this loaded team that blew it. in The NLCS 2007 was one of the great collapses of all time. I have said that Willie Randolph was a successful manager, but I think a lot of that is just in relation to every other manager that the Mets have had <laughs> for the most part, but it's not like 05, 06, 07 is some kind of golden era in Met history. So, my interest in Willie has nothing to do with writing of the wrong of the past. It's the idea that you want to have, if you're Carlos Mendoza as the manager of this team, as many different personalities, but more than personalities, philosophies around you. And obviously the front office, who he's going to be partnered with, their words, not mine, is going to be an analytically driven front office. And Carlos Mendoza, and he said this in his press conference, and Brian Cashman even said this when he was talking about Mendoza, has learned a lot about analytics over the last couple of years. And that's fine. Analytics were a big part of Major League Baseball. I'm certainly not saying it shouldn't be a part of it. Willie Randolph represents an old-school view. And so I think it's great to have as many different views in that locker room, in that dugout, In those meetings, when you're making decisions about lineups and decisions about how to use your bullpen, I think you want as many views as possible, because one thing Mendoza said was, I'm going to use everything. I'm going to use every piece of information you can have. So to have a guy on your bench that A, has been a manager, but has also been a bench coach, I mean, Willie Randolph's coached for a long time in this sport, and definitely gives you that old school perspective I don't think that's a good thing. It, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Of course, it's a good thing. Like, I like that. I like having a lot of different views. Jeremy Hefner is going to give you his angle on things. Willie's going to give you his angle. The front office before games, they're going to give you that. And then ultimately, Mendoza's job, if we buy that he does have this power, and I tend to believe he does, gets to make the decisions between all those competing thoughts. And sometimes he may side more on the Willie side, and sometimes he may side more on the analytical side. So I hope he gets Willie Randolph. I, I also think, Pete, it's good to have a, a guy on your bench who's managed before. I think that's absolutely a positive for a first-time manager.
1: Yeah, no, well, listen, I mean, it's not football where you need to worry about, like, you know, timeouts and stuff like that. But challenges and stuff like There's a lot of things that we don't need to go through those Mickey Calloway mistakes. We don't need to yes. go through the Luis Rojas mistakes. There was a ton of like you know first time managerial issues that you can't have, especially when your the expectations are through the roof. By the way, looking back at Rojas, I think his biggest
0: issue was not even the quote unquote X's and O's or bullpen handling. I think his biggest issue was not having a feel for his own room, not understanding what was happening in that locker room. And I think, or at least I'm hopeful that Carlos Mendoza is not necessarily going to have that issue. We'll get to a lot of your emails throughout the pod. Uh, and one, there's there's a bunch that were so fascinating in terms of different ideas that we didn't touch on on our off-season pod. If you missed it, it's a few episodes ago. It's an hour and a half. It's damn long. but We all lay out all our different off-season plans. And it's funny, there's so many different ways you can go with this Met off-season that we barely touch the surface. That's why coming up on our Sunday edition of the Rico, we're going to focus squarely on third base, really take a look at all the different options internally and externally that they have for third base, but a lot of great ideas in the email at the Rico be gmail.com. David from New Jersey writes, you guys mentioned the possibility of trading for Corbin Burns and or Brandon Woodruff, Brandon Woodruff less so now because of his injury. I was thinking and wanting to see if you guys agree if the Mets are willing to take back Christian Yelich in his contract, you think it'll take less prospects, or would the Brewers take lesser ranked prospects to rid themselves of the Yelich contract? Obviously, you'd want to get one of the best pitchers in the game in Burns, who I personally prefer, but maybe even get lucky and get something out of Yelich. What do you guys think? This idea by David was so good, I stole it and brought it on the air with Evan and Tiki and talking about Yelich as a fit for the Mets and the Yankees as a way as he points out, to bring down the price on a guy like Corbin Burns. For Hoff's sake, Pete's guy that he looks at in Milwaukee that he really wants is Devin Williams. And I get that, by the way. If the Mets could go get Devin Williams, I'm certainly not against bringing that airbender pitch to City Field. I just don't know if there's as much of a motivation to trade Devin Williams, who's under team control, as there would be Corbin Burns, who's a free agent at the end of the season. The way to answer this is, first of all, David, yes, I'm into it. I'll answer that right Of course I'm into it. Because the Mets, if you look at what they need besides the obvious, which is pitching, they need an outfielder. They don't have enough outfielders. Right now, the only reliable outfielder on their 40-man roster is Brandon Nemo. Then you have Starling Marte coming off injury. Then you have DJ Stewart. No idea if he's any more than a quadruple-A player, despite the way he played. And a lot of the younger guys are not going to be ready. So they need to add a left fielder. Last year, they relied a lot on Mark Hanna and Tommy Pham. Christian Yelich is still a productive player. If you look at his numbers last year, he produced. Now, he's not the MVP player that he was five years ago. And if you expect that, well, you'll be disappointed. But he's still a quality leadoff hitter. gets on base at a high pace, stole nearly 30 bases, still has a little bit of pop. And so if that's the negative that you have to take back to bring down the prospect return on Corbin Burns, that is a no-brainer, and that is up my alley. I don't want to trade a lot of prospects, but I am damn well into using money as a weapon, which I think Steve Cohn should use. And he used money as a weapon when he dumped Scherzer and Verlander and were able to get big prospects back. If you go to a team and the Yellich contract, it's not good, but there's worse. You know, Anthony Rendon's contract is worse. You know what I mean? Like that, that one's worse. I remember when we were talking about Otani a year ago. Hey, would you take Rendon's contract back if it means getting Otani? Yelich is A, still a productive player, has been relatively healthy the last two years despite the back issues that have slowed his career down. And he makes a lot of money, but it's not, it's not making $38 million a year. So I'm interested. I agree. I would think, Pete, you would be interested in something like that? Getting Burns and Yellich with the prospect
1: return being less because you're taking Yellich's contract? Yeah, I mean, so it's one of these things. It, it, it kind of reminds me of the uh, Robinson Cano trade, right? Like where Met handed over a top, top prospect and some other salary dumps to bring back an overpriced Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. And my thing that bothered me was that you spent all that money. You basically paid all of Robertson Cadeau's contract and you gave up the, the a top-level prospect. I don't think you need to like, – like you said, if it's not a top-level prospect and you're still paying Yelich, I think I can live with that. But it can't be a top-level prospect. You cannot. Even so for Chris, a red Cor- Corbin Burns can't do it.
0: Christian Yelich is making $26 million a year for the next five years So you have to look at it as a five-year contract at about $130 million. And even though Yelich had a good year last year, he's not getting five years, 130 on the open market. It is definitely a bloated contract, but it's not a contract that can be completely useless. If he puts up the numbers he put up last year, you'd be okay with it. Um. I agree with you. I, I think a part of taking the Yelich contract back, as David points out, is that you're lessening what you have to give up for Burns. Now, he also, the Brewers, the reports have been, the Brewers want them. Everybody's available, Right. And so logic tells you Corbin Burns is certainly available. He's a free agent at the end of the year. And logic would also tell you that Christian Yelich should be available because he doesn't have a very friendly contract. So obviously, yeah, both guys would be available. But would the Brewers, if they're going through a rebuild, would they actually want to take less back for Corbin Burns? Wouldn't they be better off saying, let's just create Corbin Burns for the most we can get back He's a damn good pitcher. He's a perennial National League Cy Young candidate. Let's get the biggest return on him, and let's not worry about the money. Now, if I'm the Brewers, that's what I would do. I would never be a fan of attaching a bad contract and taking less back. So I wouldn't be a fan of it, but you never know. If that's their way of ridding
1: themselves of Yelich's contract, then certainly it's a possibility. And and also just to just to follow up the Yelich thing about his fit with the Mets, I gotta be honest, over the past few years, who have we been seeing in left field? We've seen Mark Canna. we've seen a little bit of Tommy Fan was okay, we've seen JD Davis, we've seen Jeff McNeil. The the if if Yelich can come close to what he did last year for twenty six million dollars, I'm willing to quote unquote overpay for those type of numbers than what the production we've gotten out of Mark Canna in the past.
0: Yeah, I Look, if the Brewers basically said, take Yelich's contract, we're not going to pay a dime and we're not going to ask for anything. We're basically going to hand you the contract. Then I would hesitate because I don't think the five years, $135 million contract that you're basically taking for nothing is a good contract. But there are caveats to this. If the Brewers are going to pick up some of that money and now all of a sudden it's not a five year, $135 million deal, I'm open to that and then obviously the attachment to a guy like Corbin Burns or Devin Williams, then yeah, I'd be drawn in by it. But the Mets right now, and this is what I want to see from Steve Cohen, and he's already done it, so I'm not asking him to do something he hasn't done yet, is instead of giving up valuable prospects when money can be used, use the money. When there's a bad contract involved, just take advantage of the bad contract. Mike Berry thinking in, I don't want to say similar terms, but he brings up another contract that you could deem maybe not as good. And that is the idea of Jose Barrios. Mike writes, I think Jose Barrios could be a fantastic option for the Mets, a solid workhorse-type rotation arm this offseason. He's not an ace, but Barrios has made every single one of his starts over the past six years. And over that time, Cole and Nola are the only pitchers who have pitched more innings than Jose Barrios. That's By the way, that's an incredible stat. Think about that for a second. And I'm just trusting Mike's right about it. I'd have to fact check it, but it sounds right. The guy is the personification of reliability in a starting pitcher. While I'm sure the Blue Jays value him, I can't imagine they're thrilled with a five-year, $100 million that remain on the deal. The Blue Jays had a glut of rotation options heading into 24 and a dearth of position players. Perhaps they would be interested in offloading him in an effort to redistribute their investments a bit. I don't think it would take much to pry him away. Maybe a package of Vientos, unknown post-hype prospect with uh, theoretical potential, and Luis Guillerme. I like him as a bench player, but his value is replaceable. The Mets picked up a similar player in Zach Short last week. Would that be enough? This would be a way to essentially get Aaron Nola Light on the roster without having to throw gobs of money around. Let me know what you think. Well, I think a couple of things. He is the exact personification. You are right, Mike. The exact personification of a reliable arm, of a guy, and that is so needed and so important a guy that you know is making his starts every five days. 32 starts last year for the Blue Jays, 32 starts the year before that, 32 starts the year before that in 2021, 12 starts in 2020, which is essentially a full season. 32 starts in 19, 32 starts in 18. He is absolutely reliable. Now, he had a terrible 2022, and he had a very solid 2023. So obviously you hope you're not getting the 5.5 ERA that we saw from him in 2022 but yeah i would love to acquire him and i guess where i would differ with him is i don't think that contract's a bad contract like i think when you look at starting pitchers in major league baseball and how desperate teams are to acquire starting pitchers i think i would look at that contract and what's remaining on it and say that's not bad in fact i think it's a really good value deal So I don't think the Blue Jays would have any interest in dealing him. And I certainly don't think they would look at the contract as a bad one. So here's what he's making. He's making $17 million in 2024, his age 30 season, $18 million in 2025, his age 31 season, and $18 million in 2026. He then has an opt-out, which I got to tell you, I think he takes. You know, if he's out there making 32 starts over the next couple of seasons, I think this is essentially a three-year contract in which you're paying him $18 million a year, and that's a steal. If he opts in, it's $24 million in 27, $24 million in 2028. I do not think, I'd love to be wrong about this, by the way, Mike. I do, I'm sorry, not Mike. Yeah, no, Mike. Mike's the one who sent this. I just want to get everybody correct on this. I don't think the Blue Jays are going to have an interest in trading him. And if they do, let's say they say, you know what? We're interested in trading him. Let's see what we can get back. I think the return is going to be a lot because I think the teams that miss out on some of the premier starting pitchers are going to fall all over themselves to try to get Jose Barrios. So I'm with you halfway. I'd love to trade for him. I don't think he's out there.
1: I I hate when I see someone have a bad year like he did in 2022 it was so bad it wasn't just a high era the whip was high the walkouts and strikes strikeouts were, were pretty much the same ratio as normal but i can't stand when i see those because my thing is it, was it an outlier was it a one and done or is that going to be like a every other year they're inconsistent and a lot of times that's what happens and Let i don't, me ask you
0: a Yes, let me ask you a question. And it was a terrible year last year, uh, two years ago. Two years ago, depends yeah. how you want to call it. Last year's really twenty twenty three, so I don't even know what year we want to <laughs> refer to it as. Would you rather have a guy who has that season, thirty two starts, five ERA, whatever it was? Or would you rather have a guy who makes fifteen starts and has a really good season, but it's only fifteen starts, and now you have to find a way to replace those seventeen starts he can't make? And the chances are the guys who are making those 17 starts are so freaking bad <laughs> that it offsets how good that player was in his 15 starts. Would you rather have the reliability of 32 starts or 15 really good? And then I guess I got to figure out a way to piece together the remaining 17. For call-up
1: purposes, yeah, you, I guess you want the, the consistency. But in the end, it all averages out the same. It's still a, a bad... <laughs> situation it really does it really is regardless you think about it think think about showy otani right let's say we get Shohei otani and he makes 15 starts in 2025 right okay great you have to piecemeal it together you throw with right. the dave petersons of the world the tyler tyler mcgill's in the end that could still equal a or era with a 1.47 width if you combine them all together
0: no, yeah. I, I think it turns out to be similar and that's why i would bank on the guy that's making the 30 starts. I mean, yeah, you you always have that risk with anybody you sign that they're going to have a bad year. Bad years happen, even amongst really good players. I would get concerned when it's numerous bad years. That's what would cause me to panic. That's why we haven't talked a lot about this guy, because I don't think any of us really think he's a fit for the New York Mets, and that's Cody Bellinger. Cody Bellinger is one of the more sought-after free agents in all of Major League Baseball. Cody Bellinger is so different than a guy like Jose. I know it's different positions, but I guess you'll understand my point. So different than a guy like Jose Barrios, who had a bad year. He had a bad year mixed in over a career in which he's been mostly solid. Cody Bellinger, after he won the MVP in 2019, became an unplayable baseball player. Like He was so bad, so putrid in 2021, you couldn't play him. Like he, There was a point where you're like, I can't, I can't actually start this guy. And in 2022, it was sort of the same to the point where the Dodgers non-tendered him. So he has a really good season last year with Chicago. He's still only 27 years old. And so a team is going to sign him to a mega contract. And I would tell you right now, I would not feel good about signing him. I'd not feel good about signing him for a myriad of reasons. Number one. Some of his metrics last year kind of show you that it was a lucky year that he had with Chicago, that it's going to be very unlikely he's even going to repeat the numbers he put up last year. And then also you have three seasons, a three-season sample size in which he wasn't good. So I think there's a difference between a guy who has a bad year and a guy who has three bad years in a row, and you're trying to determine, okay, who is he really? Big difference.
1: No, I, I, I agree, and I 100% – listen – if Cody Bellinger somehow does not get a huge contract, doesn't get a long term contract, I'm willing to take a risk on like a one year prove it to me contract. But on that note, too, it's not my first choice. Like that would be like desperation. February's around the corner and we have a, we were still missing an outfielder. We didn't make that Christian Yelich trade and we need to fill a spot. Hey, Cody, do you want to play for, you know, one year? F- Thirty million dollars. I'll give that a shot, but I don't want to go. I'm, I'm not interested in Cody Bellinger as far as a long term deal. I would almost give anybody a shot
0: on a one year deal because you have so little to risk and so much to gain. I don't think that's going to be an issue. Bellinger is coming off a good statistical year, and he's going to get a long term contract, and somebody will pay him. And then we'll find out if you and I were right because we happen to agree on this that Bellinger is a major major risk in free agency. Josh Sachs writes. Guys, I thought Mendoza was very impressive at the press conference and seemed to be a really nice guy. That worries me. (laughs) I know it's just day one press conferences and it's probably making too much of it, but I hope he shows the toughness on and off the field that this job needs. I just don't see him as the type of guy who's going to go nose-to-nose with umpires or benching someone for not running out of play, etc. Nice guys finish last, I guess we'll see. His reputation, and that's all we can look at right now, his reputation in that Yankee locker room, is that he is a tough guy. I don't know if we live in a day and age anymore in which any manager is going to just bench someone when they don't hustle. I know we've seen it a little bit. We've seen it in baseball, but it's not, I don't know, this isn't 1969 anymore. You know, Gil Hodges is not walking out the left field. So, you want to see guys hustle, obviously. Nobody wants to see somebody drag their ass on a baseball field. But I don't know if we're ever going to see the Earl Weavers of the past. I think it's just a rarity. I thought he came across fine in his press conference. You know, we did that instant reaction to it if you missed it. I recorded it right after he was done. It's it's tough, man. It's a press conference. And the truth is, I think we're all going to forget his press conference someday. Like, we're going to forget it even existed. We're not going to remember anything that he said. Because it's a press conference introducing a manager. Carlos Mendoza will be defined by what happens on the field. How he handles bullpens, how he handles tough questions, how he handles his lineup, and then obviously, ultimately, if this team wins. This team needs to win. And if they don't win, yes. Like every other manager that's come through this town, he will be criticized. But I would not be overly worried about him being too nice of a guy. Now, let's get to Yamamoto. Yamamoto was the guy that I think everybody had in their offseason plans. Every single person, whether it was me or Pete or any of our dignitaries or any of the emails that we read, everyone wants Yamamoto, which I still find funny because none of us have seen him pitch other than highlights. we, We really haven't seen him pitch. So here are the rumors we have now. We've got John Heyman saying, quote, I've heard he prefers the West Coast. (laughs) <laughs> we have Andy Martino saying Kodai Senga really wants him to come here, which is not a bad thing. Now we've talked about that Japanese respect factor and Kodai Senga being a star on the New York Mets. And he is, he's their ace until proven otherwise him saying, I welcome Yamamoto is a good thing. What's really good about this process is that once he gets posted, there's a clock. You know, unlike everybody else who's not coming over from Japan in free agency, and there's no posting system, a guy could sign next week, a guy could sign in February. There's really no pressure for a guy to sign, and it's really up to the agent and the player themselves for how long they want to take the process. And we saw Aaron Judge make a relatively quick decision a year ago. We saw Bryce Harper and Manny Machado take their free agency close to February when they were free agents. But when a guy is posted, there's 45 days. So for 45 days, he will get to negotiate with every team that's interested in him and then ultimately has to make that decision. And then obviously there's a tax involved where a lot of that money or some of that money will go over to his Japanese baseball team. Not our problem. It doesn't go against the luxury tax. And so if you're Steve Cohen, who cares? My confidence level right now is probably somewhere in the middle. Because I think Cohen is willing to spend the most. And it does seem like the Mets are hot to trot for him. That the Mets absolutely look at him as a must-have in free agency. They get themselves an ace potential guy to go along with Kodai Senga. And everything you do after that, you kind of build around it. You get two guys at the top of your rotation that you feel damn good about. And then you fill in with reliable arms around it. Jose Quintana already being there. We mentioned a guy like Cal Quantrill who just got DFA'd by Cleveland. That's a possibility. I think it makes the offseason in terms of chasing, starting, pitching, just a lot easier. Because you already feel like you got your two guys at the top. So I do think the Mets are going to bid big. But it really feels like there are so many teams involved in this. That the Yankees are going to bid big that the Dodgers are going to bid big, that the giants who have missed out on so many free agents are going to bid big. And so that's where my confidence is kind of lukewarm because when you get so many teams involved and maybe he does have a preference for the West coast, who the hell knows? I can't sit here as much as we love Steve's beautiful money and just assume we're going to get. it. So I'm, I'll tell you going into this post thing and into this free agency and it is the guy we all want. We're all on the same page on this. It's, it's a rare thing when every Met fan agrees on something. I haven't heard one person say, I don't want Yamamoto. Maybe that person exists, but there aren't many. I'm very in the middle in terms of my confidence. Where's your confidence on this, Pete?
1: My confidence after hearing Senga, I'm I'm like 75% positive that he's going to come be a Met because the, the money, no one's going to beat us. Um, and if Senga is pushing for it, and if their bodies... Then maybe he can convince him because that's what it's going to take. Like, I mean, going to the pinstripes, like go, like that, that's what I've heard. Like, oh, he prefers to go to the Yankees. Well, why does he prefer to go to the Yankees? Is it because of the history? Is it because the Mets don't have history? That's a possibility. But if it's like, hey, dude, come to the Mets. It's going to be fun. The the it's a better situation than than I ever thought it was. Like, if you if you can bolster up some kind of BS. I, I think it'll work. I think it'll work. And I, I think that that whole Japanese respect thing will go out the window.
0: Well, it, I like how you say we got to bolster up some BS. That's how we get him to the Mets. Bolster it up. Only show him highlights of 1986. Make believe that the 90s <laughs> and the early 2000s, like none of it actually happened. All right. It's only 1986. I, what's always so difficult about predicting free agency is we can predict teams making big offers we can predict hey that team's got a lot of money and they need this so they're going to make a big offer the one thing we cannot predict is what someone actually wants like what does he want you know if he grew up as a yankee fan in japan that's tough to compete with if that's the case if he grew up as a dodger fan in japan that's tough to compete with because he could have been a dodger fan for all we know um they have certainly had a lot of legendary japanese but really one hideo nomo who I think, burst onto the scene and was almost the the first of this era of Japanese pitchers and Japanese baseball players that have come over. So it comes down to what the man wants, and that's just so tough to predict. I don't think the Cashman kerfuffle with Giancarlo Stanton's agent who happens to represent Yamamoto, I don't really think that's going to be a thing. Because ultimately, the agent is working for the player, And the agent is going to present the player with the best offers. And if the New York Yankees have the best offer and Yamamoto wants to be a New York Yankee, he's going to go there. It is important though, no matter where he ends up, this will bother us. Let's just put this out on the table. If the Mets don't have the highest offer and the Yankees do, that'll be a problem. If he takes a little bit less money, to sign with the New York Yankees. You know what you got to do? You just got to... It sucks, man, but they're the Yankees. We're not the Yankees. And I know they haven't been in a World Series since 2009, but they also do have a history. And that history is tough to compete with. But if the Mets aren't the highest bidder, that could be our first uh, first big fight with our owner, Steve Cohen.
1: Well, uh, this is a problem I'm having here, first of all. What's your a, problem? I, I, a, I have a problem with the fact is that the the Yankees have a history and, and I, well, I well, they do I, I, really they, I'm going to tell you they don't no but but that is that is a problem how are you supposed to and this is why I said you had to you bolster some BS because in three years let's be serious Cohen didn't fix the outlook of the Mets he really didn't 2022 was great but they didn't win anything and it it, it, it went sour real quick two out of the three years he, under his reign it's still a shit show so so we ha- there has to be a way to change the the Mets history quicker to really invite these guys in and be like, this is what we're doing and we're creating it. Yeah, so got- I, I got to
0: defend the Mets for a second. I think you're looking at it in a negative light towards the Mets. I don't think it is. I think it's more of a positive light to the Yankees. They're a historical franchise. This guy may have grown up with, uh, with uh, posters of Hideki Matsui on his wall or Masahiro Tanaka. I don't think it's that the Mets haven't won enough over the last three years. The Mets could have won 105 games last year and got knocked out in the NLCS. There still may have been, if there is one, a Yankee advantage because of the history that they have, especially with bringing over and having successful Japanese players. So
1: don't take it as some kind of slight on the Mets when it's more the Yankees. Yeah, but it's a recency bias, too, because it's like if you were able to be successful in the past three years... You could easily sell him, hey, by the way, we're building this juggernaut. We're going to be the next version of the the Yankees. That's going to be the Mets. You can't say that. You can't. You just can't say that now, you, because we have built I think, consistent. At least. Are you scared of the Dodgers? By the way, are you gonna be pissed off if he ends up with the Dodgers? I, I'm gonna be pissed off if he, if he goes anywhere else but the meth. Let's be serious. I mean, he can go, he can go to the freaking Pittsburgh Pirates. I'm gonna kick my, my You know, I'm gonna kick myself. It's gonna here's be the real question.
0: If he does sign elsewhere, the field as it's called, who's the second guy you go after? Because all of the other starting pitchers that I think we're more enamored by are all trade market guys, because I don't think either one of us are pumped about Blake Snell, who won another Cy Young, or pumped about Aaron Nola. And I'm not even convinced the Mets are going to be in that market. I think it sort of pivots towards Shane Bieber, Tyler Glassnow, Dylan Cease, Corbin Burns. And what sucks about that is you're talking about, A, a lot of guys that you don't have a lot of team control over. Dylan Cease, you do. But Tyler Glassnow is a free agent at the end of the year. Shane Bieber is a free agent at the end of the season. Corbin Burns a free agent at the end of the season. So, A, you have to lock that guy up. And then, B, you're probably going to have to give up a lot in prospects. That's part of why I prefer Yamamoto as much as I do. It doesn't cost you anything other than money. It doesn't cost you a draft pick. It doesn't cost you prospects. It's just simply signing a guy. But who would be your pivot
1: point if we miss out on Yamamoto? All right, so if we miss Yamamoto... And we're not getting Shohei, even though Shohei is not going to pitch in 2024. Then I guess you have to go Nola. I don't want Blake Snell. I think Nola's the guy because again, consistency. I'm not <sighs> saying that he's. I'm not saying he's a top end of the rotation. You have Kodai Seng with that. You put him as a number two, three starter. I mean, that's what he basically is. What, listen, last year, what was the biggest thing we missed? Consistency. Yes. Yes. He no. He absolutely has that. I have a tough time believing as much
0: as the Mets may be willing to spend on certain players, and they are, that they're going to be willing to go to $200 million for Aaron Nola. I just have a tough time believing that's going to happen. And and
1: I I get that, but my thing is this, is if you're not going to get Yamamoto and you're not going to get Shoei Otani and then you don't get Nola, then what are we really doing? We're like settling to like, all right, well, we didn't get those guys, so let's go to the next level, the next tier. The, The next tier
0: is terrible. Yeah, but I think what you would then try to do is go short-term big money and just almost kick the can down the road until free agency next year when Bieber and Burns and Glass now are free agents. I'm
1: going gonna, I'm gonna to put my head through a wall. Are you kidding yeah, me? But, but they did that. it. That's what they we did with did.
0: Scherzer and Verlander. Scherzer and Verlander were short-term big money deals. And I remember when they signed those guys, and a year ago at this time, and I forget which podcast it was on, but someone was asking, hey, what's our long-term plan? And I said, well, our long-term plan is obvious. They're going to continue to reload on starting pitching. They have a core of offensive players. Obviously, they need to add some to it, and they need some of their prospects to develop a little bit more. But it's really about going out and just signing starting pitching and buying pitching until you could develop it on your own. Like that That's what they're going to do. So if they don't want to sign – if they can't sign Yamamoto – and they're not in love with Sonny Gray and Aaron Nola and Blake Snell and Marcus Stroman and Eduardo Rodriguez, then I hate to say it, but the answer is going to be, okay, big money, short-term deals, and reload next year when guys are free agents. It's not like that can't be successful. I'm not saying I'd be pumped up about it. I'm not saying I'd love it, but hypothetically, if they missed out on Yamamoto – and they're like, you know what? Here's how we're going to build a rotation. We're going to go short-term, big-money deals for Luis Severino, Jack Flaherty, and
1: uh, oh, Kyle Gibson. You're, oh, you're killing me. But,
0: but hold on a sec. Am I, you're you're killing <laughs> I'm, me. I'm killing you. I'm just telling you what. I don't think they're spending $200 million on Aaron Nolan. nor do I want to give him a seven-year contract you to be just, in bed with him. For you us. just
1: told me I'm going to bring in two pitchers who could be really good, but they're always hurt. And then we're going to get one guy who pitches to a five-year rate, but at least he gives us innings. I yes. mean, are we, we're expected to fail. Do you want? Are we looking for seventy wins? Because oh going. no, you know what that would be? That
0: would be your typical <laughs> if, 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 and then we're really good season. That's what it
1: would be. <laughs> yeah, but the alternative about. is what to give a stupid contract to Aaron Nola? No, I'm not saying give a stupid contract to Aaron Nola. But there's got to be some level of of sustainability here like we can't just keep on going like you're not going to win with that group unless you're going to tell me that severino and and flaherty are going to pitch decent when they do pitch and when they go down we're going to go then trade for more guys to bring it like the rangers just did
0: yeah oh no no that's what i was going to say that you're basically banking on severino and flaherty being the top guy that they used to be and if you're in a race and they're just average, but you're in a race, then you fortify it and go for it by trading for Bieber, Burns, or any other pitcher that's about to be a free agent. Look, the Texas Rangers, it's incredible what they pulled off. They won the World Series because they had balls, because they went out, and it's not even the Scherzer trade. It was really the Jordan Montgomery trade. It was going out and adding him. He's an interesting guy, too. Jordan Montgomery, I think I'm more... The more I've thought about it with these free agents, if they did miss out on Yamamoto and you're looking for that potential top-end guy, I don't love Nola. I don't love Snell. I've made that very clear here in this pod and in the past pod. I think I'd be more likely to give the big money to Jordan Montgomery. I think I would. Also because it's always been a stereotype, but it's true. Lefties develop later, and then when they develop, they can be damn good for a while maybe Jordan Montgomery has just fully developed. Like, he's been really good now for
1: over a year, and he's also pitched in New York before, which isn't a bad thing. you're getting so lazy. We got Carlos Mendoza. You want to bring Jordan Montgomery. You want to bring Luis Severino. You said Harrison Bader. I mean, (laughs) are we trading for Giancarlo Stanton too?
0: (laughs) (laughs) They just happen to fit. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I get it. There's a lot of former Yankees, a lot of former Yankees. By the way, look at it this way, Pete. Is spent, forget Bader. Bader is what he is. He's a fourth outfielder. Like Kevin Kiermaier, Harrison Bader, glove first guys, Tweedledee, Tweedledum. So put him aside, okay? Tim LaCastro last year too, by the way. i guy, former Yankee. I always loved him. I must have a thing for former Yankees. I don't know. Severino and Montgomery. Severino I've always been a fan of in terms of I still think he's got that in him. I still think he has that dominance in him. So even last year, before he had this terrible season he just had and got to free agency. I've always believed he has it in him. Montgomery, I'm not even thinking of as a Yankee. I have to be honest with you. I think of him as a Cardinal and a Ranger because that's where he was good. Like, I only mention, oh, yeah, he pitched in New York because it's nice that he has that experience. But when you think of Jordan Montgomery, I don't even think of him as a Yankee. I think of him as a guy that was awesome in the postseason for Texas and a guy that also pitched very well down the stretch last year for St. Louis. Those just happen to be the guys I like. I don't like all former Yankees, that's for damn sure. But those guys, I do. We will focus heavily on third base, on a Rico we'll put up over the weekend. But we will give you a very special Rico, late Friday night, early Saturday morning, reacting to the non-tender deadline, reacting to the big Met decisions that they have to make about their roster, specifically a guy like Daniel Vogelbach and Trevor Gott and Drew Smith and who's here and who's gone. But then the other part of that non-tender deadline is not just who the Mets kept and who the Mets got rid of, but who's entered free agency. What new players are we now intrigued by because they were non-tendered from their team? Again, we mentioned this guy on the pod earlier, but Cody Bellinger, non-tendered, and he turned out to have a tremendous season last year for the Chicago Cubs.
1: Do you have anybody sp- specifically that you think may be non-tendered that would be a big shocker? I don't think there's ever going to be a big shocker.
0: I just think there's going to be a lot of depth starting pitchers that we're going to look at or relievers that we're going to say not too bad or maybe a fourth outfielder that we're going to look at. So I don't know if anybody is going to shock us necessarily, but, but it just Bel- adds the Bellinger to the pool was, of
1: players. The Bellinger was pretty shocking.
0: Yeah, but Bellinger sucked. <laughs> he did I remember we were both okay bringing him in on a one-year deal because like I said I'm good with anybody on a one-year deal that's why when we talk about those starting pitchers like yeah it's a one-year contract you got nothing to lose you got everything to gain and you have absolutely nothing to lose one other thing I want my fellow Met fan to keep in mind and we will do this over the next month okay so we're gonna roll this out slowly before we do it but it's the second annual Rico Bronia rewatch where we find a classic Met game, and we rewatch it, we rewatch it on our own time, and then we have a special podcast in which we break that game down. I do have one strong opinion about this. A year ago, if you missed it, you can go back in the archives from one year ago and take a listen. We rewatched Game Seven of the 1986 World Series, a forgotten classic game in Met history—the last time the Mets won a championship. I do believe that coming off a horrible season. We got to go the other way this time. Instead of watching a great moment in Mets history, we have to watch a really bad moment in Mets history. And there's a few that jump out at me. For those that remember it, because it was 2006, we could rewatch game seven against the Cardinals. That is certainly on the table. For those that are 40 and younger, maybe we rewatch a game that we've been told about that we have been lectured as one of the worst losses in the history of the franchise. It is simply called the Mike Socha game. Mets-Dodgers, 1988. I think that's a really good option. If you want to go back further, how about when we lost Game 7 of the World Series back in 1973? So that's just me. I I do think after a bad, bad season, we got to go negative. We got to go depressing. So let's find a game in Met history, a horrible loss, and rewatch it. Those are my three nominees. There are more. If you have more, if there are other painful losses you think we should rewatch, I'm damn well open to it. B
1: at gmail.com. I have, I have a couple suggestions, too, just off the top of my head. 07, game 162. Ugh. 08, 162. With, any of those twos can be up there for play as well. They're, They're pretty certainly minimal. up
0: there. You want to go game one of the 2000 World Series, the Jose Vizcayeno-Timo Perez game? (laughs) You want to go game five of the 2000 World Series? You want to go game six of the 99 NLCS, the Benitez-Franco-Blow-It-Kenny Rogers game? A lot of options. So we'll take your, but we should do a loss. I mean, in fairness, we did a win last year. We should do a loss this year. And again, how it works is we find a game that's readily available on YouTube. We announce this is the game we're going to rewatch. Give everybody time, maybe a month. And then we do a special podcast ripping, reacting, emotionally talking about that said game. So that's on the docket. Very busy week of Rico bro, a lot of pods. If you missed it, we had an instant reaction to Carlos Mendoza's press conference coming up Friday into Saturday. We will react to the non-tender deadline. And then over the weekend, we will preview and go through all the different options the Mets have specifically at a position that's been a major issue since David Wright retired and got hurt, and that's third base. We appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.